you're listening to Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. Today's topic, an examination of critical race theory. Let's get into the discussion. All right, episode nine, episode nine of Biblical Christ Research Institute's podcast called Train of Thought. Got my brothers here with me. Got my brother Duran Gladden down there at the bottom of the screen. And I got my brother Eric Powers over here to the left of me. Well, my left. And so we're going to get into it today. We're going to talk about critical race theory. And we're going to just examine it, see where it goes. Uh, brother Eric has something that also that he wants to share about uh, uh, postmodernism. So we're going to just go ahead and get into it. This critical race theory is, as Eric said on the last podcast, critical race theory is very, a very large beast. <laughs> There's a lot that uh, we have to deal with, a lot that has to be covered. And uh, one of the things that I discovered in my research is that even with when you're dealing with critical race theory, um, they don't even agree fully on how to define terms or what actions to take. So what we're going to do is just try to look at some basic ideas that seem to go across, that seem to span across all of the um, the different ideologies within CRT. <clears throat> and then we will offer our critique on those, even, you know, go, go to the scriptures and see what, what the scriptures have to say about these things as well. <clears throat> so just a quick discussion about the origins the origins so it, it critical race theory actually springs sprang up in the 1970s had to do with um, critical legal studies uh, during the time of the civil rights movement so there's a lot of lawyers and activists and uh, legal scholars who were examining uh, things that were going on during that time. And um, it reached a point where they felt that the civil rights movement had, had, had stopped or wasn't advancing as far as it should have. And so they began to develop some theories and some strategies that would help to um, continue to advance civil rights forward. Um, <clears throat> so they noticed what they felt were subtle forms of racism, like when you hear um, terms like internalized racism or individual racism or assimilation, when you hear terms like that, that these are some of the things within their theories and their, their strategies that they discovered. And so early writers came on, uh, one of which was Derek Bell, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw is another one of the founders of what, what we would call critical race theory. And Richard Delgado <laughs> is another one that uh, got involved in the critical race theory. And so eventually they started to join together and uh, they actually had a conference, their very first conference in 1989 during the summer outside of Madison, Wisconsin. And uh, some of these were like sessions where they got together and it was closed and they, they worked on 
their theories and their ideas. Other ones were, were open. Some were took place over multiple days, had a lot of different speakers who would come and speak on different avenues of critical race theory. But it has grown a lot since then. And now it, in today's society, it is uh, really at the forefront. <clears throat> and so we wanted to just talk about what was going on with these these critical race theory ideas and we want to talk about um a better way <laughs> to approach these things mm-hmm. so uh another thing about critical race theory is that they eventually it branched off so now critical race theory isn't just about black people critical race theory now has splintered off and now there are latino crits there are Asian crits, there's Indian crits, there's Native American, and there's even LGBTQIA+. So now critical, and this is why it's hard to pin it down um, in a manner that where you could really dismantle it because it's all over the place. And so in order to really deal with it fully, you would have to go to, and deal with each of these splinter groups as well because they're all looking at different things. But some of the uh, main tenets of critical race theory that we want to touch on, um, and again, not everybody's going to agree on these tenets of critical race theory, but these are some of the more familiar ones. The first one is that racism is an ordinary thing. It's not an aberration. Okay. They say that anytime you go out of your door, basically, anytime you encounter people, you're going to encounter racism. Now, I don't know about you fellas, but I personally have not experienced it in a long while. I know Deron and I have talked about our experiences at times, even sometimes being profiled or, you know, I've had white people call me the N word or boy or things like that. Um, but it, this, this hasn't happened to me in a while. And so people would tell me, because it hasn't happened to me in a while, that somehow I can't relate to these things. So uh, just to open the floor to you guys, you know, it, do, would you agree that race, racism is an ordinary uh, experience in the lives of society today? Well, Chris, I mean, like the, the, main, the main proponent or the main tenant of... Uh major theme of this particular theory, and again, it's theory, critical race theory, where they're contending that America is permanently racist to its core. And so it, it affects the, you know, our legal structures and everything. And so that, that's their argument that, uh, that um, the United States of America and a capitalistic society is permanently racist. From a, as a Christian, from my perspective, um, there's, there's no room for racism within Christianity. So I would say, I would say, no, um, not everybody is. Okay. Duran, got something? Yeah. I think, um, one of the things that I would point to is the fact that, you know, you can't eliminate ethnic prejudice as long as people practice partiality. I think that's one issue. Um, I think another issue is, you know, when you're looking at I like what Eric said, and I have to piggyback off it. When you're looking at the idea of so-called racism, you have to account for the fact of a, of a question. I mean, 
is it so systemic, because that's what they're saying, is it so systemic that it's unavoidable, and is it so systemic that it keeps you from achieving personal goals and professional goals and things of that nature? Um, and so is society at large not only captivated by it, but is society at large practicing, practicing it in such a way where you have no opportunity for advancement, no opportunity to actually achieve anything as an individual, such as basic things in terms of just being able to take care of your family and have, have a job and uh, mm -hmm. all those things, necessities. I don't believe that that's the case. I believe that that stands largely with the individual um, because you can sit in front of, a, uh, in front of you know, an interviewer and theorize about why you didn't receive you know, a position or some kind of opportunity that's one way to, uh, uh, to, 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 uh, to approach something. But the other way would be is you could find out what weaknesses do you lack as an individual that's stopping you from propelling yourself forward. And perhaps there's things, if you're a believer, there's things that the Lord may be withholding from you that have nothing to do with another man uh, judging you on the basis of partiality. So that would be my contention. If partiality is so yeah. strong that it stops you from achieving, um, you know, any kind of personal any kind of personal goal or any kind of, uh, you know, necessity. Like, sure. do I have to go shop at another store because there's quote-unquote racists um, who won't allow me to buy what I want? And is the society lacking so much diversity in where I can go shop that I have to fixate on that situation and I can't go anywhere else to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to buy my goods? So I, I think, I think, the theory of it is hard to pin down, but the practice and function of it, I don't believe society is so systemic that, uh, that you can't achieve in the West uh, certain, certain, uh, certain goals for yourself. Yeah, and I, I'd agree with Duran. I mean, it comes down to individual. I mean, when you're standing before someone and they're interviewing you for a job, um, what is that person thinking, you know, the individual? And again, like, I, I have to look at all this through the lens of being a Christian because... I'd argue that people that are dead in their sin, they do take exception to others if they have a different ethnicity mm -hmm. or a different gender. Um, but, you know, we're, uh, we're looking at this from the perspective of being Christians. And, you know, we argue, and the Bible clearly teaches that there's no room for um, taking exception to someone based on their ethnicity. Yeah, I would, I would, I would add also, I mean, there's, there's a sense in which, you know, Paul writes about in the Corinthians, there's a sense in which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it's in Corinthians, a sense in which the believer is a fragrance of death to the unbeliever. Oh, so sure. If I'm, a, if I'm a believer, and I, no matter what my ethnicity is, and I'm standing before unbelievers in the world system, which is... They're going to take exception to you. They're going to take exception to me. I won't oh, have, absolutely. I won't have the same, you know, uh, ability to be righteously judged or, or righteously appointed for the opportunity. Because and, I'm and, for being a Christian. I'm being exactly. A Christian. And and to answer Chris's question, I that's real. I feel that every day. Absolutely. Yeah. That that, that discrimination Absolutely. as being a Christian, one hundred percent. That's that's a great uh, um, section to reference, Duran, because you're absolutely right. I mean, instead of Roma, absolutely. and so uh, that transcends this whole <clears throat> uh, issue of um, you know racism. So. Oh. Their argument here is that racism is difficult to cure or address. Um, they they seem to 
shun the idea of what we would call being colorblind. You guys know what I mean by that? Yes. Yeah. They they would shun the idea of being colorblind as as a form of equality. Um, they they would say that that's not enough. Um, is it is it possible to eradicate? Well, I don't even want to use the term racism. Is it possible to eradicate ethnic prejudice in this life? Uh, I think it, I think it is, and I think it's only capable, only possible through reconciliation with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, when God reconciles men to Himself through Christ, that uh, you know the mystery, the ministry of reconciliation that we read about in Second Corinthians chapter five, and concerning the doctrine of the atonement, the nature, the atonement, the extent of the atonement, what Christ has accomplished, and uh, the gospel, how God reconciles us to himself through Christ. Therefore, we have the ability now to have a true, meaningful relationship with another man or woman who has been reconciled to God through Christ. And so I think, I think the gospel is the only way to eliminate ethnic discrimination. The only way. Yeah. And I grew, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Eric. And I, I mean, I grew up, uh, you brothers too, in, in 1980s when there was this kind of like... <clears throat> You know the Oprah Winfrey years of uh, this kind of pseudo um, reconciliation, uh, and and uh, again, but that was just that was just like uh, fuzzy, warm cotton candy feelings from the world. It had nothing to do with the gospel because you know Oprah Winfrey is a false teacher, and she doesn't know or understand the gospel, doesn't articulate that. So a lot of it was just based on feelings um, as such. But uh, we got to go back to the biblical definition of these terms of reconciliation and see that that is the way and we talked about that last time in the in episode eight about you know the the atonement and the nature and extent of the atonement etc and how that's being redefined by black liberation theology and clearly themes of that you find that motivated critical race theory and so this is a more violent approach than the that kind of uh time period like in the the late 80s early 90s I call the Oprah Winfrey years. <laughs> yes, I'm yeah, bad, Duran. Yeah, I agree. I agree with Eric. And, and I would also say, you know, the, the great myth in society at large and in the so-called woke movements that have sprung up uh, trying to latch themselves um, to biblical Christianity is somehow there's the mindset today, which I don't believe is true, that biblical Christianity does not address ethnic prejudice. And yes, I believe it does, and not only 100%. does it, it, it deals with it head on. And in fact, in Ephesians 2, my answer to your question, Chris, would come from Ephesians 2. I believe it is possible, um, and I believe specifically the verses, uh, all of them in their context, but verses 13 and 14 specifically, mm -hmm. deals with the fact that Paul was faced with a conflict in the modern Gentile church of that time that was comprised of both Gentiles and Jews. Um, you know, and, and, and what he described was that the blood of Jesus Christ being powerful enough to tear down a dividing wall between ethnicities, uh, to break down a certain barrier, and to then, um, where, there's in, where there's enmity between man and between God, and then also enmity between men, is now something that is cast aside. Now, people go, well, why isn't that happening? I would say that the issue would then be 
um, I would have to turn that question to how familiar are you, are you who are practicing this partiality with the scripture itself? Uh, because I believe the, the issue at large is that a lot of people are saying they're Christian are uh, exegeting society, uh, but they're not exegeting the word of God. And so when it comes to conflicts, they deal with things from headlines, popular opinion, politicizing, election jargon, you know, all kinds of things. And I think what Paul writes, and I'm going to, you know, I'll read it very briefly, but he says, uh, and I would say, look at the full context of Ephesians 2, but he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups in the one, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. And watch this in verse 16. And might reconcile them both in uh, one body to God through the cross by it having, um, by it having put to death the enemy. Mm -hmm. So if you're telling me that it's impossible, I would say it's only impossible if you try to remedy these things through some secular humanistic back and forth debate. I'm going to tear down your, your statues and, and, and you're going to tear down my statues. Uh, if you try to resolve it that way, then obviously it's, it's hopelessness. It's only theory. Uh, but if you look at what the blood of Jesus Christ actually does, um, then it can be accomplished. I would ask those who harbor partiality and ethnic prejudice in their heart on both sides. Mm -hmm. Where are you in Christ? Mm -hmm. Are you born again by his spirit? Because it's not that you become colorblind when you, uh, because that was the second part of your question, Chris. When, when you when you come to faith in Jesus Christ and you're born again by his spirit, you don't, you become more cognizant of the beauty of ethnic so-called diversity. This is true. Um, that 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 awakens in you, whereas before it didn't. It wasn't there, and if it was, it was a superficial appreciation. But when you're saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't become colorblind. That's not the goal of what Christ is trying to accomplish. If it were the goal, he would not be gathering to himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and leaving them in such a way to recognize their own. Uh, ethnicities, but not to have that be their primary identification. Yeah, because we identify diversity of ethnicities. The book of Revelation speaks about that in chapter 5, verse 9. Mm -hmm. And so um, if, if I have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have a particular ethnicity, of course, and then someone with a different ethnicity is also, there's, there's, no, there's no partiality. We're, we're, same, we're saved the same way. So we look at, look at each other as such. And, and we see the, the beauty of diversity and that we complement one another. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when you, when, you, when you have truly been reconciled with God and with man, uh, when you've truly been saved, it, it, as Duran said, it opens your eyes to beauty, but not just beauty in, in the sense of uh, diversity of ethnicities. It's just beauty in, in general. Yeah, because it you know. points to to the one who saved us. Yeah, and, right. And I don't the, the price that it, that it cost him. Right. I don't look at mountains the same way that I used to. You know, I don't look at animals or uh, the the sky when I see a sunset. It, it means something way more than what it used to mean. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is God's handiwork. You know, it mm -hmm. it it brings me into a, a state where I would want where I want to worship God and just thank God. I end up thanking God for the beauty of His creation. You know, um, but it, as as Deron said, it also helps us to embrace the beauty 
of other ethnicities. You know, it, 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 it keeps us, uh, it helps us to mortify the sin of prejudice. It, 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 it calls us, the word of God calls us, and it says we are now equal because we have been made into one man. You know, the, the middle wall has been torn down. No. Uh, yeah, Paul even said, uh, it was in Galatians, it's, just not, it's not slave or free anymore. You know, it's not Jew, it's not Greek. No, we're, we're all one in Christ. And it's just, it's so important. That it saddens me to watch on Facebook, and I'm, I'm sitting on Facebook and I'm going through my timeline, and it saddens me to watch Christians argue with one another. I've even, got, it's even gotten to the point, and I think there's a point in this book um, where they talk about the idea of if you haven't experienced this or if you're not my skin color, you can't speak on it. And I've even seen Christians do this where they'll make a post like you, you white people don't get to speak for me. And I'm just thinking in my head, well, how is that not doing the same thing that you're accusing other people of doing? Now you're being prejudiced. Now you're being discriminatory as if somehow you have some interpretation of the scripture that's better than this white person's interpretation. And it, it's just, it makes absolutely no sense. No yeah, the, sense at all. The best thing a postmodern and theoretical approach can do for, for mankind is to subjugate you in such a way. So as the only way and hope for you and I to be able to relate to one another is if you become enslaved to certain things that I bind to you. And that's why I said in our previous episodes that what you're seeing is the new slavery. It's a slavery of people's mindset where they're encapturing one another to experience. And it's existential, uh, this existential situation where you and I can't relate to one another until you have not only subjugated yourself to what I'm going through, but interpret everything in your life based on what I've been through. Uh, to me, there's no standard, there's no objective standard that will allow for you and I to ever relate to one another genuinely if that, was, if that were true. And all we could do is sit around and theorize, and politicize, and, and do hashtag campaigns, and all this other stuff, but, but we never really take each other seriously enough to actually look, at, look to an objective standard and go, what would judge you and I both along the same perfect standard in such a way so that we can relate to one another with the expectation that it had better be clear and it better be uniform. Yeah. So you have this uh, sense of um, unbelief that that's actually going to come to pass that we are, we're going to have to stand before one, one judge and uh, his judgment is impartial, sincere. And uh, you know, it's the absolute standard by which we're going to be judged. And so I think the reason why they're saying that is because it just stems from unbelief. They don't believe that they're actually going to have that is actually going to happen. Right. Therefore, they live their lives. Even they suppress the truth and the righteousness is speaking about in Romans. And so yeah, that's that's where those elements of postmodernism are coming in, where you're naming your own reality, you're deconstructing what uh, this this pseudo narrative that you've created, and you're tearing it down so that you can build up your own narrative and take over. I mean, all those themes is just like a hosh podge of all this stuff. I mean, Marxism, black liberation, theology, existentialism, 
revisionist interpretations of uh, the civil rights, all this stuff. Right. And so that's, that's where we find ourselves. This, this is the, this has now become the philosophy of the age. Right. You know, this um, continuing history that we find ourselves in now mm-hmm. is a, is, I mean, I think critical theory has taken over maybe um, taken over uh, beyond postmodernism. I would have to agree with that. The critical so, race theory is the most prevalent thing out there right now. Here in, especially here in the United States. So maybe in the West, maybe this is, uh, the, the, you know, you have modernism that ended sometime in the, you know, the 70s and postmodernism took over, but then you have this coming out of postmodernism. And now, I mean, you just look at what's happening in our society. I think this is, uh, I think we're moving in that direction. Yeah. And I actually found what I was, was looking for. Um, it's called the voice of color thesis, <laughs> the voice of color thesis, the voice of color thesis holds that because of eth- uh, minorities, different histories and experiences with oppression, black Indian, Asian and Latino writers and thinkers may be able to communicate to their white counterparts matters that the whites are unlikely to know. Minority status, in other words, brings with it a presumed competence to speak about race and racism, which is where these these ideas of you can't speak for me come from. It's this mm-hmm. it's this voice of color thesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it goes on to talk about uh, what, what you wanted to get into, Eric, the legal storytelling movement. Oh, yeah. The legal storytelling movement urges black and brown writers to recount their experiences with racism and the legal system and to apply their own unique perspectives to assess laws, master narratives. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's just, it, it, there's just so many issues to deal with oh, yeah. <laughs> within, within critical race theory. I mean, but this, this particular one is the one that always bugs me. This, this voice of color thesis that somehow, if you haven't experienced what I've experienced, you don't have the right to say anything at all. So, oh, yeah. so the white pastor who is rightly dividing the word of God and is calling people to true rec- reconciliation can't speak for you because he hasn't experienced uh, some kind of oppression or racial profiling. Oh, he's, he's proclaiming the truth. So if he's proclaiming the truth, then he has a right to speak. And you don't have the right. I mean, it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's audacious. You don't have the right to tell that person that they can't speak for you. I mean, you can, you can, you know, finagle it how you want to, but if he's speaking the truth and you're, and, and you claim to be saved, that white pastor or that, that white preacher, or that teacher, or just that, the, that white, brother or sister in Christ, they're your brother and sister in Christ. So when they speak the truth, you should be coming alongside them and supporting them in that truth. Yeah. I mean, any, anybody like, uh, you know, whether it's the, the elder, yeah. you know, deacon, you know, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, if they're speaking the truth, you know, they're pointing to the objective source. And so this is, this is not their subjective feelings. It's not their opinion. You know, they're pointing to the word of God as the objective source. And if they're accurately exegeting, drawing out the author's inten- intended meaning and explaining it, that's exposition is in explaining the author's intended meaning, um, then you would be foolish not to listen. Because right. you know, that's, that's what we're called to do. We're called to draw out the author's intended meaning. 
And that's, that's where this postmodernistic element comes in. Uh, the, the, you know, the author no longer has the right to intend the meaning of the things that the author wrote. You reinterpret, you know, you have uh, revisionism, um, and you have eisegesis. You read your own opinion into the text or into the situation or, or whatever. So this is existentialism. This is postmodernism. You know, this is where the reader changes the author's intended meaning. And so that's why you're, that's why the claim that you see in critical race theory, when naming one's own reality is the storytelling element from one of the major themes, naming one's own reality is it's the reader. It's you, your sub, you know, the, the, um, your subjective experience, uh, through that, um, you uh you're not interested in in the author's intended meaning so your truth is your truth my truth is my truth but you don't get to tell me or point to what's true or what's not true only i do through my own subjective experience and that that's where you see that major theme of postmodernism as the red thread throughout critical race theory and it's specifically in you know the storytelling naming those reality but also in uh deconstructionism so if you're if you're claiming that it's impossible even for the civil rights movement to erase racism because racism is the foundation of our capitalistic society, which is the claim from critical race theory. You need to deconstruct that and reconstruct it. And so the theory is you're claiming that whites, you know, quote unquote whites um, are controlling society. And so how would life be if quote unquote, you know, blacks, we're making the rules, writing the laws, et cetera, et cetera. I think that is the major, um, one of the major themes of critical race theory. And so they're able to accomplish that through, you know, namings, naming one's own reality. But if you're, if you have African American ethnicity or European ethnicity and you're a judge in uh, the secular world, uh, um, I hope that you're interested in, you know, I, I read the Bible just like I read any other book. I'm interested in the author's intended meaning. And even here with critical race theory, we're interested in the author's intended meaning, what exactly are they saying? And, and that's really dealing with the issue as you're dissecting it. You're looking at, you know, the features of Marxism and other things behind it. And, you know, what are you, what are you saying? And so if it, it, it for even, even in that, in their postmodernistic um, motifs, they're contradicting themselves because when they say, you know, even like, they're looking at the world through subject subjectivism and they're saying there's no absolute truth and they want to uh, name their own reality and, and as such. And they say there's no absolute truth in the way that we say it. Well, that's a contradiction because they're making an absolute statement. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so how, they, how do you, so how they, do you, how they do just, you pinpoint that? Yeah. They just want to deconstruct what we're saying. They're doing. They want, this it's all. This all is an attack against God. Really, they want to deconstruct the Word of God, and they want to reconstruct their own reality, and be kings and queens of their own reality, and take back what the quote unquote white man took from them. It has nothing to do with that. No, not at all. Yeah, I, I think you know. I think the the issue is because we we live we live in a time where largely and we talk about social media and i think it has a good element where you can do what we're doing today where you have a platform to you know put yourself forward as a clear voice and as much as your voice aligns with scripture but i think one of the issues is people are able to largely create their own reality so functionally so on social media if i don't like what somebody says i can block them 
delete. If I only want to hear what pertains to what I appreciate in terms of the way I interpret my daily day-to-day life, I can simply unfollow somebody. I can unfriend them. I can gather to myself people that I, that I prefer to hear from. Yeah. Postmodernism governs everybody on Facebook. Exactly. And I, Mm -hmm. but, but I also think if you're, if you're a believer, a true, a true Christian, I'm talking about born again believers. I'm I'm talking to you in this because you have to live in a world where this is now reality. Mm -hmm. You know, I sense the frustration, but a big part of it is if you're not confidently studying God's word, and if you're not confident in what the word of God puts forward, and how it, it, it is superior, eternally superior over all ideologies, then you'll probably start to tend toward the direction where you want to silence people, where you want people not to be able to put their views forward. But I would argue that, um, you know, according to Paul, we don't want to live in that kind of society. Second Corinthians 10.5, our goal is to demolish arguments. Mm-hmm. So Jude talked about earnestly contending for the faith. I don't want to personally eradicate views that I don't that I don't agree with. I want the word of God to eradicate them as I'm proclaiming what he has said. And so if you come to me with an ideology that does not represent the Lord Jesus Christ, um, then I want the ability in as much as you came to me to be able to demolish that with the scripture. I don't want us to just all go into, uh, you know, some kind of political correctness or the fact that, you know, I can just revise both of our arguments so that we're talking past one another. I want you to be able to say things uh, that you're thinking so that I can biblically demolish them. Um, that, that really is what the Christian, and when I say demolish, I want you to be reconciled to God. It's not to embarrass an individual, but it's to show them where they've come to wrong thinking. Perhaps they're spiritually dead or they're immature in the way that they're able to deal with things. I, I, want, I want you to have the platform to say what you're saying and as much as I want to be able to correct it and pray that you receive it. Um, yeah. So, so there's, there's not this, you know, it's, it's, it's honestly very infeminate and very childish to want to eliminate all arguments in the name of revisionism so that none of us can ever disagree. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, that, that's, that's, that's a form, form of oppression. It is. It's, 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 so if you're telling me that the, the goal for the plight of the black American, quote-unquote black American, is to live in that world, then you're telling me you're insulting uh, that very same um, ethnicity or, or, or group of ethnicities by saying they can't think for themselves enough to be able to demolish the arguments in front of them. You have to eliminate the arguments mm-hmm. or revise them and pretend they never happened. Mm-hmm. And to and me, then- you know, I believe, I believe that man made in God's image has more intelligence than that. I don't believe he's, he's come from primates. I don't believe he can't vocalize and express himself clearly, even if he's wrong. Um, you know, so I don't think you want to live in a world where you can just eliminate arguments and eliminate things because they just they make you feel a certain way. You never be able to come to the knowledge of the truth that way. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. You just you can't. It's not possible. And Absolutely. since you you talked about revisionism, since since we're on that, since you mentioned that, let's talk about revisionist history. Mm-hmm. Um, so revisionist history has to do with them looking at the history of America, basically. And then they basically interpret history in a way to where if they see something that isn't acceptable or 
uh, they see something that they don't agree with, then they basically, in essence, replace it. They they make history more palatable to the minority. I mean, they do the same thing with church history. I mean, right back there, Duran knows what those are. That's Shaft's history of the Christian church. Even with the history of the Christian church, you have people who want to sanitize it and revise it and make it seem as if it's not as dirty and grimy as it actually was. Well, it, it is. It, you, there's nothing you can do to change that. But now they they have this idea that if somehow we can pull down all of these statues, if we can tear down all of these monuments, if we can get rid of all of these pictures, um, if we can get rid of, like, what was that? Even the cartoons, like, what was that? Paw Patrol? They try to get rid of the, the, the dog that was the a cop. The Simpsons? You know? <laughs> it's just one one of the greatest uh, TV shows known to man, The Simpsons. <laughs> it's 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 there. So basically, in their effort to rewrite rewrite history, they're actually in essence erase trying to erase it. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I live I live near Baltimore where they they tore down um, Christopher Columbus statue, mm-hmm. and, and honest, I, I didn't even know it was there. I've never seen it before, <laughs> and and I'm the last. I mean, I'm not gonna. I don't celebrate Christopher Columbus. Um, I'm, you know, it, that's the thing. You know, the, the, these distinctions we have to make in between. You know, who who's a Christian, who's not a Christian. So, right. the, you, you can't put me in the category of of what how you're looking at other people. You know, um, I, you know, I'm a Christian. I'm not part of the world. So. But the whole thing about the, the tearing down, like rewriting history and all the rest, it's just disingenuous. I mean, these things happen, and and so uh, we we need to uh, ch- tell people about it so they don't repeat it again. Mm-hmm. But that, but but tearing down the statue is not going to accomplish that. Yeah, I know. I know, I, I know a lot of the arguments that I've that I've read and studied um, with critical race theory regarding revisionists. Uh, they're they're and they're and they're very you know they're very upfront. We're not we're not placing something on them, they don't admit themselves. They admit that one of their goals is to revise um, history itself so as to provide a favorable interpretation to peoples of, of, of color, um, which summarize kind of their, their disposition toward it. But again, I mean, I, I don't, you know, you don't want to live in a world where you don't know what's happened before. Um, I mean, just to put it simply, uh, you know, I, I me, I, I'm not a big, I'm not a big fan of statues anyway. I mean, I'm not a big fan of erecting monuments to individuals um, because I believe that, you know, the glory of Christ and of the triune God is something that is above all men. So I, I believe when you get to the area of, you know, putting men's achievements out there in such a way where you monumentalize them and saint them and all these other things, I think that that's just an issue overall. But I mean, that's happened from since since the fall, I mean that's been the case all the way throughout all ethnicities. Uh, but having said all that, I think the big the big issue is as things stand in history, you know I, I know critical race theory attacks the lecture and the instruction aspect mm-hmm. of history, and I would say that you know having sat in classrooms and listened to lectures, good and bad, um, I say a big part of the classroom is not to help you formulate an opinion, so to speak. It's to help you go out and research the accuracy of what's being said. Mm-hmm. I think 
you know, as a person who enjoys history, both the good, the bad, or the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, I, you know, I think for, for an individual to only look toward the lecture and the instructive element, uh, and also what's written in textbooks to pretend that there's nothing else out there and not enough ideas out there to counter, uh, to also deal with certain facets that you may not have been taught in school, to act like those things aren't available. Um, and we don't have this vast internet highway, uh, the, the, the trafficking of information that surpasses every, every uh, civilization before us. To act like those resources aren't available and somehow you know, if you tell me Christopher Columbus did X, Y, and Z, I have to just believe it. And because I don't like it, I have to tear down the statue. You know, to me, that's going in the other direction. Yeah, oh yeah. Hey, hey, that's, a, that's a really important point, the other direction. Because as I see Cohn as being a false teacher in the time period that, that he lived, basically, majority of the United States was under a Christian consensus, when you say in like the, the 40s and 50s. And so he shows up as a false teacher to lead African-Americans out of a Christian consensus. You have this downgrade now into critical race theory. And what you're saying is just this uh, um, revisionistic history and people aren't doing the research. They don't care. I mean, just that you see that the the downward spiral occurring. I'll tell you the great, the great, the great battle, the new enslavement is the people who are saying that they have solutions for the so-called black community oh, are yeah. the people who are treating them as though they don't have the mental capacity to deal with things and to bring about the change that they so desire, whether from a functional societal or intellectual standpoint, you know, so I, I you know, no, and I'm talking about the people who are saying that they're solving the issues. Mm-hmm. So critical race theorists are looking at the so-called peoples of color and going, well, the only way for you to make strides forward, is for you to constantly see life in terms of what you're not achieving and for you to look at yourself in the means of self-pity and therein you begin to advance and the people around you can advance with you. And to me, you know, when you look at what that actually accomplishes, we're looking at it today. We're looking at the fruit of it. I don't see Mm -hmm. progress. I see people begging more for progress today than they did before. Um, Because again, and it's not because progress was never achieved. It's because of where you've degenerated to because those things haven't been, uh, haven't been done in terms of careful research, you know, the word of God being held high before men and not personality, um, because people have not done a good job of dethroning the Christian consensus, the idea that you're born into a life of Christianity. Um, those things didn't help society itself. It only made people uh, become comfortable uh, without being able to defend the convictions they have. So, uh, back, back to the Christian consensus uh, idea, because um, I know that some would probably argue that the Christian consensus at that time was not uh, uh, palatable or mm-hmm. acceptable, uh, or it did not um, it did not aid the blacks, and so they yeah. had to find sure. Some- no, yeah. So how, yeah, I, how, how would you answer that question? Well, I understand. When I, when I bring up a Christian consensus, I mean society was uh, at large under Christian consensus, mm-hmm. um, but not everyone was individually Christians. And okay. so, so you, you, do, you have a lot of features that are contributing to the downgrade controversy and denominations and apostasy even amongst the Christian consensus in society. But I see 
James Cone show up, like Duran's saying, to try to provide a solution to what African Americans were suffering during uh, days of segregation. Um, but he, the element that he brought to it was false teaching and redefining the atonement, redefining reconciliation, and and uh, kind of like a Pied Piper coming in, blowing his horn, his flute, and and drawing people out. And then that, in and of itself, turned into critical race theory, where critical race theory is is uh, is a secular concept. I mean, you don't even there's nothing about God in it whatsoever. It's just Marxism and atheism. Absolutely, and in fact. You know, I would say that for people who want to make a caricature of the Christian consensus origins, you know, okay, you can look at two sides of the coin. If you look at the so-called white supremacist movements, they were not Christian. They were not distinctly Christian. They were fascists. Yeah, exactly. if If you look at the civil rights movement as an answer to that, it was more based on Hinduistic principles. Yes. It was based more on the New Age concepts of man being able to embedder himself Mm -hmm. uh, through certain actions, through certain mindsets. Uh, So it has more to do, if you look at even King's I Have a Dream speech, he invoked a lot of Hinduistic, Gandhi, uh, uh, nonviolent principles that had everything to do with with the Hindu uh, ideology than it did with Christianity, one. Um, So Mm -hmm. you had a whole bunch of people identifying with that and trying to reconcile that with, you know, uh, conventional Baptist, uh, so-called Baptist Christianity and other things. But then the answer to that black nationalism was not Christian and it didn't apologize that it wasn't. It was simply, you know, it was the vehicle through which that was fed uh, was uh, the aberrant form of so-called Islam uh, that was, uh, you know, black, the black Muslim movement and the black power movements. So they, they were trying to answer Christianity and it wasn't really Christianity at all. So then you have true Christians throughout all of the nation's history that have stood up and have certain, in, those time, in those time periods, yeah, sure. In, in those time periods. And yeah. so, so, you know, I believe that you have to identify, that's why you can't erase history, because you have to identify where did these movements and ideas come from? Why do these movements that we would deem sinful feel so comfortable identifying with the so-called civil rights movement? Yeah. Um, you know, so I think people are not asking those questions because they're being taught that whatever is unfavorable, you have to eliminate it. So I think... You know, when we talk about the Christian consensus, I'm talking about, as Eric is saying, that mindset that says you are Christian because you are born into the nation and its principles and under its constitution. Yes. Um, and so, you know, that that's that's not Christian. And people will go, what about the individuals who said they were Christians and did X, Y, and Z? Um, they weren't probably Christian, if you know, based on whoever you're referring to. Um, yeah, what, what was their doctrine? I mean, what was their doctrine about reconciliation? Exactly. What was their doctrine about exactly. uh, soteriology, pneumatology, exactly. um, cosmology, the origins of the universe, you know, their doctrine of God, the Trinity, you know, what, what did they actually teach? What did, what did Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. teach concerning his Mariology? So all the all that is very important, and 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 we got to study that stuff, like you said, and not uh, deconstruct it or practice revisionistic history, and 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 just pick and choose what what you want to talk about. You got to consider everything that was going on. Right. So so uh, I know Eric, you wanted to touch on the storytelling, um, and uh, kind of tie it into your postmodernism. So if you want to. 
Oh, sure. Okay. So yeah, one of, one of the major um, themes again of critical race theory is this storytelling or counter storytelling, mm-hmm. you know, n- naming one's own reality. And, uh, and that's really through, uh, this is the area of epistemology and, uh, and philosophy, study of belief and knowledge. And so you have this, um, and this is kind of very similar to revisionistic history, you know, uh, revising history and reductionism. But I think this is a major feature here has, has uh, motifs of postmodernism. So for those that are listening right now, I had a, yeah, here's my, I had a book up earlier that I was showing you guys. This is a really good book, just objectively. Mm-hmm. It's called Postmodern Times, A Christian Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. And this was written in 1994 by this guy here, oh, uh, yeah. Gene, Gene Veith. And so this, this is a really good book about just talking about how, when postmodernism, uh, the inception of it, when, uh, when it came to be, the reasons why, and um, just a lot of the features of it. And so undoubtedly you see where this uh, major philosophy of the continuum of history where we find ourselves postmodernism um, contributes to critical race theory in naming one's own reality. So I, mean, I mentioned some of the other stuff about it. You know, what's true for you is not true for me. There's no absolute truth. You know, you need to name your own reality. And, um, and that's where they tie it into existentialism. And so, and, and what you guys were talking about, uh, you know, through their own, to the, you can't identify with, with the black experience or people's blackness unless you go through the same things. Mm-hmm. And so the subjective, subjective element to that, et cetera, et cetera. So on a biblical Christ research Institute, there's an article that was uh, written back in 2014, the truth versus postmodernism. It's under the historical theology tab. And I encourage everyone listening to please read that. Cause that's, you're going to see a, biblical critique of postmodernism and i think the best way for the readers to kind of grasp this is to go there read that article check out that book that i that i mentioned and then go back to critical race theory go through those major tenets and themes and see exactly how uh how that is interconnected and separately constrained postmodernism that is and separately constrained to critical race theory i think that's that would be an excellent exercise for those listening uh, to kind of see how this is contributed or actually even kind of brought this to be. And so you had uh, postmodernism as, as the major philosophy of where we find ourselves today happened around the same time that this happened in the 1970s as, as we're transitioning, like I said, from, from the modern era and how modernism impacted and even a downgrade controversy of the Christian consensus in the United States of America. And then that shift from modernism because even modernism made claims that you know darwinistic evolution you know this is the origins of the universe is how this came to be they're making absolute claims and they're just um competing against the the word of god as far as speaking about our origins and stuff but then you have postmodernism shows up and it's and it's uh it's a contradiction of itself to say there's no there's no absolute truth because you just made an absolute statement so um, there's that to it, but there's the shift from even saying absolute, absolutely this, this, and that to, you know, you write your own story, you name your own reality. And so I think where, where this shows up in critical race theory is, is this deconstruction of 
the way society is, this narrative that they have borrowed from Marxism and brought into, uh, you know, and made discussion about race because Marxism had to do more with class. And, uh, and now they're bringing into the race, uh, the, the race discussion where, you know, the whites, the oppressor and the blacks, the victim, and they create this narrative and then they want of way society has been structured and then tear it down and then rewrite and name your own reality and, uh, and, and create this kind of, uh, narrative of storytelling imagination of what life would be like if things were done the way that we want them done. Mm. Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the idolistic implication of that is fascism. Um, because what fascism needs is an ethnicity, not only to blame, but an ethnicity to raise up uh, as, the, as the savior. And so, you know, when you have sweeping generalizations, a lot of people invest a lot of time uh, trying to eliminate sweeping generalizations. But you know, there's a way to use them, even as Paul used them, if they're true, then they're helpful. Where he said all, all, all Cretans are liars and, and lazy, lazy <laughs> gluttons. Um, that was true about those Cretans. And so, you know, but the thing with the fascist mindset is that it, it laments under the pressure of generalization, but it also seeks to um, cause generalizations when it's convenient. I'll give you an example for the modern uh, mind both historically and in the present age is uh, Nazi Germany is when I said fascist that and probably uh, Italy under Mussolini come to mind um, but when you think about what was taking place there is that you had uh, a leader who was blaming one ethnic group for all the troubles of the nation but also raising up before the people another ethnic group to be the savior and when you look at the present application of that you're seeing the same thing you're seeing a sweeping generalization over a segment of society uh, particularly it looks this way all white males or all white police officers are x y and z and all black males are x y and z and if you push that to its conclusion and a lot of people may scoff laugh argue but i'll tell you historically and by its application if you push that to its conclusion you will have fascism you will, because you'll have a collective group of people who now stand in position to, quote unquote, take their own revenge and right their wrongs. And that is where you, all you're missing is the charismatic leader to bring it together. Um, so I believe that that is a very real danger. And, and I believe that maybe people haven't thought about it or thought about it that way. But, you know, that is where uh, Marxist ideals eventually have to go even if they don't want to identify themselves, uh, you know, and they fight amongst each other because uh, Satan's kingdom does so all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, so now uh, an another thing you wanted to talk about, Duran, was nationalism. Um, yeah. And critical race theory does touch on nationalism. Um, I know you wanted to talk about it within the parameters of Malcolm X, which we'll do on another episode. Yeah. But but here, I just want to read this example, these examples that they provide because I've experienced this myself. They call it they call it nationalism versus assimilation. Right. So the first the first person is a nationalist. The second person is considered to be an assimilator. Okay. So so you have. Uh, 
Let's see. So you have the nationalist who, his name is Jamal, okay? And Jamal, by choice, lives in an upscale black neighborhood and sends his children to local schools, more than likely black or predominantly black local schools. And he could easily fit into a mainstream life, but he feels more comfortable working and living in the black milieu. Milieu means environment and considers that he has a duty to contribute to the minority community. Accordingly, he does as much business as possible with other blacks. The last time he and his family moved, for example, he made several phone calls until he found a black owned moving company. He donates money to several African-American philanthropies and colleges. And of course, his work in the music industry allows him the opportunity to boost the careers of black musicians, which he does. Okay, so that's the, the nationalist. That's what they consider nationalism, where you're zoomed in on the black environment, the black culture, and everything that you do pertains to that. Everything, you funnel your money back into the black uh, neighborhoods, you funnel your money black in the back culture, you do everything for black people. Okay. Now on the assimilation side, there's a guy named William. Now, William says he also donates to several black causes. And although he practices law in a white dominated law firm on behalf of corporate clients, most of whom are white, he does pro bono work whenever possible on behalf of prison inmates a large majority of whom are African-American. He lives in an integrated suburb that is 90% white with a smattering of blacks and other persons of color, most professionals like himself. So now, on the other hand, you have the person they, that they would call an assimilator. So where they come into uh, the white communities and they're trying to build up some awareness of blackness by dealing with the white people in some sense. Okay. So it says eventually William and Jamal meet up and they discuss their lifestyles and they agree to disagree. William believes he is doing more good by breaking barriers in the white dominated legal world and that his work as a lawyer, especially when he is crowned with the partnership he expects in a few years, will enable him to do some real good on behalf of minority clients and businesses. And even though Jamal is currently making more money than William, William believes that his own top salary as a partner will one day match that of his high school friend. So this is another, this is more of an internal, like what you would call an in-house debate between uh, blacks and other blacks. And I've been, I've been guilty of assimilation myself. I mean, I could, I know we don't really like to talk about experience that much on our podcast, but in order to understand where I come from and why I would be deemed an, an assimilator, I grew up, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles, right? Okay, so, but I went to schools, my parents sent me to schools out in the valley. And the schools were predominantly white. Okay, they were Lutheran schools. Remember, I told you, Eric. That yeah, you meant that. Yeah, mentioned that last time. Yeah. Yeah, I grew up uh, Baptist and Lutheran. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I went to Baptist church, but I, I attended Lutheran schools. And uh -huh. my last high school was a very small school, and it was it was a uh, hundred people there. Uh -huh. Ninety-seven of which were white. It was only three black people, me another a black guy and a black girl 
Okay. But if you looked at her, they, you know, the, the black nationalists would have looked at her and said that she wasn't really black. Okay. Cause she was more into white culture and, and those type of things. So, uh, I mean, currently I work at Ferguson waterworks and the branch that I work at, I'm the only black guy there. Okay. So I could be, and I have been accused of somehow not wanting to support my black brothers and sisters. Um, what would you say? Uh, I know Duran, you, you want to touch on nationalism or black nationalism, but in a case like this, what would you say, or how would you argue for or against either, either one of these? Well, I think, you know, I, I think we touched on it. I think largely it's up to the individual to make the kinds of decisions that will eventually uh, provide a, a certain quality of life. And by that, I don't mean uh, from a secular humanist standpoint. I mean, there's certain things that you're entrusted with that you have to care for, um, a family. Uh, so you want to put your family, your children, uh, you want to put the people that are entrusted to you and that you have to care for in the best position to succeed as possible, whatever that may be. But I would say that there's inconsistency with both. And I would actually challenge both along these lines. The father of black nationalist thought was Malcolm X. There's no debating that. Mm -hmm. um, because for the James Cone that exists, he looked to Malcolm X to achieve what he thought he was achieving in terms of black liberation. Mm -hmm. Malcolm X is the father of black nationalism. And I, I say that, that's a very important place to start. Mm -hmm. And um, I would say he adopted many ideals from Garveyism, Marcus Garvey. Right. Um, but I would say he is the father. And I would say his speech, the ballot or the bullet, um, in 1964, right before he was killed uh, by African Americans, and certainly there may have been cooperation from the government, et cetera, et cetera, as unclassified documents uh, point out. But I would say one of the reasons neither side can even debate the issue is because of this. This is the part that's going to make everybody uncomfortable that they want to name, you know, Malcolm and put black power fists on their profiles and live their lives, you know, wearing black power fist t-shirts. The thing with black nationalism is it's all the things that you said about the first individual, Jamal. I don't know why they named him Jamal. He can't have another name. <laughs> but but the, the, issue, the issue on both sides of the equation is, especially with black nationalism, one of the tenets that Malcolm laid out in that speech, and I'm, I'm not saying Malcolm X had a, 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 he was a believer. I'm not saying was a, he had a Christian worldview. I'm saying people want to follow his ideology, so you have to now follow it to the T, is that as a black nationalist, you do not get to um, blame any other ethnicity or facets of society on the conditions of, in your community. So if you're identifying with that community, if you're buying from black businesses, if you're trying to uh, establish the economic basis for the black to remain separate from the so-called conditions that would be uh, placed on them by the so-called oppressor, then one of the most important tenets that Malcolm laid forth in that speech, um, and it was a year before he died, I believe it might have been a little shorter than that, so it's not like we're talking about early Malcolm versus later Malcolm, mm -hmm. um, is that you don't get to then look at your society, your 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 ethnic community and begin to blame the white man 
and begin to blame everybody else within your nationalism for your failures. That you have to look to yourself and understand why you have failed and how you've contributed to those failures in order for you to move forward. So a lot of people will say that they're black nationalists and a lot of people are willing to abandon that very foundational tenet of black, black uh, nationalism altogether in favor of passing off blame to everybody else for the conditions of their community or making the conditions of their community a tertiary thing. So, you know, let's not talk about that. Uh, and I'll tell you, the, the, the issue is that everybody assimilates to a degree. Let me explain that to you. Um, it's more overt with the assimilator. And Brother Chris, I don't think you have to say you're guilty of anything. I think, again, it stands with the individual. Um, wherever my family stands, some of whom may listen to this or may be, listen to, may be listening to this, you know, the way that I was raised is they tried to put, put us into areas of success having grown up in the inner city. And I believe that they were trying to escape some of the things that, uh, that took place in the inner city uh, by the hands of those who look just like us. And I thank them for that. I don't look at them as sellouts. I don't think I was cheated. Um, you know, I believe that uh, the proof is in the fruit of what one has accomplished. So I believe that I'm all the better for those kinds of decisions that I couldn't make myself at that age. That's the one thing I want to express. Um, the, other, the other issue at hand, when you, when you look at where this has gone, you have to consider that the communities themselves, they allow what they will and then policies are shaped based on what you allow. And so, you know, you can't, you can't decry certain things that are taking place and allow other things to take place that would further uh, your community moving from one that establishes value and economic policy to a community that's simply being policed. You can't glorify a subculture that does that and then lament the conditions that bring about in your community uh, to be generalized or treated in that way. Uh, but I would also say it happens in the mindset of the person who would today say they're a black nationalist and the way that they report on what happens in the atrocities in the so-called uh, black community. I can speak to that community because, um, again, we'll deal with the term black community, but I'm familiar with it, uh, where, okay, when you have a police officer, maybe a, a, a white, quote unquote, white police officer kill um, a, a black man or a black male in the so-called black community or wherever he may be, you have this aggressive response, very aggressive response. Like you have marches, you have people talking about societal and political and economic change that's needed and, and societal reforms. I read an article of a young girl who was killed by, I believe it was blacks in Memphis, four-year-old girl. You know what the article said about her? She was at the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. And then you read about, you read about, you read about, okay, an individual, like I said, Malcolm X, you'll read on forums about what people say about him. You know what people say about his death? Gone too soon. May he rest in peace. So people don't even prioritize the black life in such a way so as when it meets its end by the black hands, that they express almost that they, that they believe the black life is so primitive that it should be snuffing out the life of another. Mm. But, but, but the black nationalist is saying, my power is in my identification, not providing the actual solution. It's like, like you, for instance, they, 
crowded the streets of LA for Nipsey Hustle. <laughs> but every weekend in Chicago, you got black kids, like two-year-olds, five-year-olds, seven-year-olds getting killed. And there's not a peep said about that. The, 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 the lamentation for an individual like Nipsey Hussle and, and others who were killed by, uh, you know, Tupac Shakur. And, I mean, you can just go down the list. Yeah. Others who were killed this way, the lamentation is, man, that young brother is going too soon. He could have done so much. You know, it's almost like, it's almost like this, like I said, it's, it's a slavery mentality when you think that by your hands, violence is normal. Mm-hmm. But, oh, when the white man kills you, the quote-unquote white man kills him. Society is off his axis because we expect him to be a higher form of this evolutionary chain of men. When I'm going, if the biblical perspective is the unbeliever, the unbeliever is capable of all kinds of atrocities, no matter what he looks like on the outside. Exactly. And so I believe that the black nationalist doesn't go far enough in accepting what Malcolm X said. You can, you can, you can take exception to me for saying this, but I didn't say it. I'm not a black nationalist. I didn't list the tenants. I've listened to the tenants and I'm putting them before you, where he said in his speech, ballot and the bullet, that uh, the ballot or the bullet, that the, uh, the black man must begin uh, or must to be a black nationalist. He must accept the conditions for which his community stands in order to change them. And he must accept personal blame for them. Um, and that made a lot of people uncomfortable. That's why everybody's okay with talking about Martin Luther King. They're not okay. You know, everybody will march, but they don't want to get into the nitty gritty of accepting blame to change things. Yeah. Now. So, now, so yes, I believe, I believe that those are, you know, those are, I would approach both groups in such a way so as to point that out as to how they're both being inconsistent, I believe, when you're applying <laughs> these concepts. Yeah, my, my, my mom is watching, so she made a comment. She said, they still come around on the weekends and back up traffic for Nipsey Hussle taking pictures with the murals. So basically, they treat him like a god. We, we, we memorialize when, when young black males are killed in the community in which they live. And, and Nip, Nipsey Hussle found out what Malcolm found out. Mm-hmm. If you stay in a community built on destruction long enough they will probably turn their guns on you and that's just true i'm not being insensitive that's true that's a true statement but having said that you know we we memorialize these young black males who are killed and bypass their killers in some form i mean you even have the 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 omerta culture in the in the black so-called black community you know no snitching culture right well we can kill each other but that's policing that's justice you know, that, that's street justice. We have all these cute terms when we blow each other away. Um, but when, when the quote unquote white man does it, then, then there's hell to pay. To me, that is no different than the kind of slavery mindset that will keep you oppressed and keep you as a victim and as fodder for your so-called liberators. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I'm not against people staying in their communities. I'm against them uh, having this kind of... Uh, Jekyll and Hyde approach to what the solutions are in their communities, uh, their yeah. communities, and then passing blame on everybody else who really have nothing to do with their communities. And, um, and, and you know, I mean, you are, you, you're, you're basically, 
responsible for where you live. And I believe that goes to individual property rights. I mean, whether you want to call me an assimilator, an Uncle Tom, a coon, whatever, whatever adjective you want to put before me, I'm responsible for the property that I hold. I'm responsible for where I live. And I have to conduct myself accordingly. And if it's against the law or for the law, then there's consequences in both directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to just to clarify something you said, I don't feel guilty about the choices that I've made Good. to to provide to better provide for my family. So, I mean, people can say whatever they want to. If, if you don't have your facts straight, it's just going to roll off my back. You know, I got pretty thick skin. So no, I, I don't, I wasn't feeling guilty about it. I'm just, I was using myself as an example because I've been accused of. You were using it as a euphemism. Yeah. I've, I've been guilty of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I've, I've been accused of being uh, assimilating and trying to be like the white man you know, sometimes how I talk, you know, even you, even you have said it, you know, you, you hear me with the hood talk for a second and then I'll get, and then all of a sudden I'll start talking proper. I've been accused of that kind of stuff and everything. So no, it's not a guilty thing. I just wanted to use myself as an example. I don't want to get too far into personal experience, but you know, a brother like Eric, our brother, Michael, who's listening you know, mm-hmm. those are individuals who grew up in communities that were probably more distinctly, quote unquote, black and African-American than I did. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I went into those communities because I had relatives um, and I'm very familiar with where they're where they live and with where they're from because I have family there. But, you know, on the other side of the coin, they live in those communities without choice and they're treated as though they simply don't belong. They're treated with suspicion. And it's, and, yeah. and it's not like there's this conspiracy where the CIA or FBI placed them in their communities <laughs> to somehow extract from the community's resources. They, you, you live where you live. And you got some COINTELPRO going on there, huh? Yeah, it's like you live, you, live, <laughs> you live where you live. And I believe people have taken exception to so-called uh, whites who live in black communities and, and pretend as though they're a part of either gentrification or they're living there under some auspice of trying to extract from the so-called black man. When, um, when, when all it simply, yeah, when all it simply is, is that that's what they could afford, you know? That's, that's, <laughs> that's, it comes down to the individual choice. Now, if I can right. afford to live in the so-called black community and I have to send my children to school because the quality of education and schools aren't where they should be, and, and let's be honest, some of the black community lament those things. Mm-hmm. So why would I force feed my children in their future into the same paradigm that you're dissatisfied with? Uh, but anyway, you know, I, I don't think that that is the kind of mindset that uh, would be otherwise known as selling out or should be treated with suspicion. Um, and I don't think it's cut and dry. I don't think a person is trying to assimilate as much as, uh, because when Malcolm was talking to give you a context, he was talking about a time uh, during overt Jim Crow. Uh, where there weren't the opportunities to look to other communities and even move into those other quote unquote communities because of the lack and prevalence of fair housing uh, and other things. I actually pulled up the ballot or the bullet (laughs) Uh, and I have the, the transcript here. I just wanted to read some of it so we could hear directly from the primary source what he defined black nationalism is. And then you can continue on. 
uh, says the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that the black man should control the politics and the politicians in his own community. The time when white people can come in our community and get us to vote for them so that they can be our political leaders and tell us what to do and what not to do is long gone. And then it says applause. So you got some applause for that. By the same token, the time when that same white man, knowing that your eyes are too far open, can send another Negro in the community and get you and me to support him so that he can use him to lead us astray. Those days are long gone, too. So he's, he's talking, talking about, about the civil rights movement. Yeah, and he's, talk, yeah, and he's, he's talking about, in, in, in modern terms, he'd be talking about the assimilator. So he says the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that if you and I are going to live in a black community and that's where we're going to live, because as soon as you move into one of their, as soon as you move out of the black community into their community, it's mixed for a period of time, but they're gone and you're right there all by yourself again. That actually did happen in Compton, right? You know, because Compton originally, the white people lived in Compton. Yeah, 40s and 50s. Yeah, yeah. Right. And then the black people moved in and then they moved out. Many cities so. across this nation. Right. So he says, we must understand the politics of our community and we must know what politics is supposed to produce. We must know what part politics play in our lives. And until we become politically mature, we will always be misled, led astray or deceived or maneuvered into supporting someone politically who doesn't have the good of our community at heart. So the political philosophy of black nationalism only means that we will have to carry on a program, a political program of re-education to open our people's eyes, make us become more politically conscious, politically mature. And then we will, whenever we are ready to cast our ballot, that ballot will be cast for a man of the community who has the good of the community at heart. And he goes on, the economic philosophy of black nationalism nationalism only means that we should own and operate and control the economy of our community. You would never have found, you can't open up a black store in a white community. White man won't even patronize you. And he's not wrong. He got sense enough to look out for himself. It's you who don't have sense enough to look out for yourself. The white man, the white man is too intelligent to, to let someone else come and gain control of the economy of his community but you will let anybody come in and control the economy of your community, control the housing, control the education, control the jobs, control the businesses under the pretext that you want to in integrate. Nah, you're out of your mind. The political, the economic philosophy of black nationalism only means that we have to become involved in a program of re-education to educate our people into the importance of knowing that when you spend your dollar out of the community in which you live, the community in which you spend your money becomes richer and richer. The community out of which you take your money becomes poorer and poorer. And because these Negroes who have been misled, misguided, are breaking their necks to take their money and spend it with the man, the man is becoming richer and richer and you're becoming poorer and poorer. And then what happens? The community in which you live becomes a slum. It becomes a ghetto. The conditions become run down. And then you have the audacity to complain about poor housing in a rundown community while you're running down yourselves when you take your dollar out. So when, when was that written, Chris? Uh, this, yeah. Let me, when? Uh, April 12th, 1964 at King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I mean, Duran mentioned like this area where I grew up. I mean, you had the, uh, if you guys recall, do you remember the Million Man March? Oh, yeah. 1995? 
Yeah. I mean, that was, that was a major nationalist, uh, you know, march in D.C. So after that, certainly, I mean, especially what Duran was saying, like this area is definitely forced segregation um, that's not even, you know, this is that, that people are doing and acting towards each other it has nothing to do with the laws in this area now. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, having having said that again, I'm I'm not I'm not affirming what Malcolm has said as something that I agree with. What I'm saying is, the black nationalists must agree with everything he has said if they truly want to be a black nationalist. And you'll see all the complaining and the blame shifting move away from uh, external forces and external ethnicities to self, because. Wherever people believe they are today is as a product of not hearing what he said economically and politically, then if they're going to call themselves a part of this new black liberation philosophy. Um, and, 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 and if you're going to do that, I tell you, you who are pro-black and have your fists held the highest, you had better be prepared to do two things because this is what the father of the black nationalism uh, movement was telling you to do. Rebuke the Democrats for holding themselves forward, rebuke the Republicans for holding themselves forward, and also rebuke BLM for funneling money to the Democrats in order to put these leaders in front of you and try to claim as though they are for your so-called uh, societal and economic progress. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, it's this game of both the assimilator is acting as though he's the nationalist when he's uh, really neither one because he doesn't want to assimilate in his own society and he doesn't want to become a true nationalist where he moves back into the slum and tries to repair it and accept the conditions as uh as 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 being one in which he's he's blamed for establishing and so i see great hypocrisy all across the board that i believe uh, malcolm was addressing and it's why he got a bullet uh that's why he got a bullet instead of being able to vote in that uh effectively in elections to follow after him um but i believe he was addressing something that was certainly true then and i believe it's true now um, except people lack the courage to actually step away from groupthink and say, what is my role? What part have I played in the conditions in which I find myself or my family finds myself or my society finds itself? Mm -hmm. um, the Christian doesn't have to do that because the Christian is not of this world. The Christian doesn't belong to the kingdoms of this world. The Christian solution is not simply to foster better economic and political security. The Christian is preaching a kingdom and a king who's coming and can call every man to repent equally and without partiality. So my goal is loftier than Malcolm's could ever be, but I'm saying for those of you who want to identify with him, you better be prepared to accept his full tenets um, if you're going to say that you're the nationalist that you are. Yeah. You got anything you want to add, Eric? Yeah, I mean, even uh, his, his um, affection for Islam. I mean, like I mentioned, the absolutely million man march in 95 in this area in dc um they call it the day of atonement so again this goes back to you know redefining terms and uh and all the false teaching that's wrapped in this so you want to benchmark him as one of your heroes in the um civil rights era uh, i mean um uh era then um you have to accept uh all his all that he stood for in his teachings etc so and, and let me tell you very plainly, you have to accept the conditions and the people who set forward the conditions to end Malcolm X's time on this earth. Some of them look just like I do. 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and I mean, you know, we, it's people are, our people are spending a lot of time looking at the white man and failing to look at the discrimination that takes place right within our own people, you know. And you and I joke about this all the time, uh, Duran, because <laughs> I'm, I'm light-skinned and you're dark-skinned. And, <laughs> and we joke about it, but it actually does create a divide. I mean, Spike Lee oh, made a whole... People. Yeah, among some people. It does. Yeah, Spike Lee made a whole movie about it. Um, uh, school Days. It was all mm-hmm. about the light skins versus the black skins. And that stuff still happens today. I mean, so when, when, when are we going to turn and look inwardly and deal with that thing? Look, the, you know, the thing about this life, because you'll hear laughter on this podcast, the thing that people lack, and I believe, you know, people want to do all kinds of stuff, conferences and podcasts about masculinity and all this stuff, and they can't take a joke or they can't laugh or they can't laugh at themselves or they can't have a sense of humor around them. I think a lot of the practical overcoming of all this stuff is to simply not be so easily offended by what people think. Oh, this is so Uh, true. Sometimes it's just easier to laugh at things that are wildly, you know, I've had things said about me from people who either look like me or don't from people within modern evangelicalism. Um, I have people say things and none of it keeps me awake. Sometimes you just got to laugh at things and laugh off people who have no bearing on the truth, whose criticisms are baseless, I mean, you can't really invest yourself vicariously in every single action of every single individual. I think also, you know, what it comes down to is, and what people will find with biblical Christianity, as I've said before, it's very personal and very intimate. And so this collective mindset where when something happens to someone in society, because here's what I'm going to hold the biblical Christian to, they're so readily willing to identify with the ills of, 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 of what a person may have befallen in society. You know, a man has a knee on his neck and they're willing to identify with that. But when the believer suffers for the name of Christ, there's silence. When the believer suffers for preaching the biblical truth of God's word and the gospel, people begin to, oh, hold their head sideways and say, oh, I'll pray for you. But, but when there is really a pursuit of God's word, a pursuit of his person in such a way where it brings about that promised persecution that Jesus mentioned, that Paul mentioned, then people will pull back from you. But they're so willing to jump up and put a black square on the profiles, so willing to jump up and identify with societal upheavals and societal ills and shake their fists and lobby for societal change. But when a Christian is proclaiming the Christ they claim they serve, they're ashamed. So what I'm asking for is the same boldness, the same energy as people say today, uh, where when I'm suffering for saying what I'm saying, mm-hmm. for, for holding up Christ, when you brothers are suffering for saying, this is all about God's truth and his word, and I take exception with those who mock Christ, and I'm going to stand forward, loss of liberty, uh, loss of my job, loss of whatever it may be, for standing forward and standing on God's truth and in his person and being hidden in him. And people are quiet. You know, to me, I'm going, you don't get to decide when you're going to be courageous if you have so much courage. Um, So I I can speak very plainly to all the situations before me because my courage is not my own. It's in Christ. 
Mm-hmm. And so I don't have to muster up anything to be truthful. My point is, I don't have to oppress any man and say he can't speak because he doesn't look like me, but he'd better sound like the Lord Jesus Christ who I serve. And then he can speak to every single issue that's ever been known to me. And so, um, again, you have people who, and I'm talking about those who are claiming to be Christian. I expect the world to be shiftless and cowardly and yeah. they don't understand. They just, whatever movement comes along, they just, they're, they're, they just bite the bait. The world's going to world. I mean, for, 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 for Christians to not identify with those who are being courageous in Christ, um, you know, it's always going to come back to the house of God because Peter mentioned that's the first who's going to be judged. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, I look always at the modern evangelical movement and tell them that they need to clean up their act because what they're doing is they're guilty of raising up a generation of cowards and then putting forward all these conferences and all these mantras and all these seminars on how to be more courageous men. And I'm going, but you don't even stand with the courageous in the places that cost the most. Mm. Also, so you don't, you don't get to choose when to be courageous. And so does the black liberation movement have a right way of identifying that? Sometimes I believe they do. Uh, I believe their solutions are completely satanic and devilish. Uh, but I also don't think you get to preach about courage when you only join the fray after you've seen millions of people join the fray. And then you don't get to raise up weak, cowardly, and feminine men and then proclaim that they need to be courageous in the face of what the world is going through. And you don't get to raise up institutions and structures that give way to infeminate ideologies and infeminate men and then somehow step forward and say that men need to be more courageous and blast them for, for the lack of courage. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do it because racism is a cash cow. And, oh, yeah. and, and, and I'm, I'm saying the modern evangelical, uh, their, their problems disguised as solutions are also a cash cow. And so you always a, have to be tearing down both. Yeah, it's in their repertoire to make money in just different um, topic, just whatever topic brings in uh, the cash. Right. Exactly. So I'm always going to lament that. And let me tell you something. For those of you who are listening, that's dangerous. That's dangerous when you begin to speak in such a way where you begin to survey every movement and every ideology. But that's what we're commanded to do. So, you know, I believe that there's some real grievances out there in these so-called woke movements. But I believe that what they've identified with in the past wasn't really biblical Christianity to its core to begin with, which is why they're so frustrated with it. Um, so I would just say, hear the voices that are before you today, this hour. Test what's being said, not with your emotions. Uh, but I pray that these things uh, provoke you in your, in, in your spirit in the true sense of that. Uh, but again, I, I, you know, I really believe that the issue at hand is uh, the idea of, of, of what it means to be a Christian. But how do I be a Christian? How, how may I be a Christian courageously? Right. And, then, and then am I a Christian? And am I being a coward? And am I only being strong in the areas that don't cost me anything from an eternal perspective? Because it's easy to be, it's easy to be bold about political and economic situations. Right. It's easy to have a bold and clear voice when you're talking about this temporal life and just go on about the base. But when you begin to tell people that they're under God's wrath and, and you begin to live as though you're not and that fragrance that emits from you to them and, you begin to critique everything that has nothing to do with God. You know, I, I believe that, you know, people will begin to say that you're insular and you're isolating yourself and, and the same people who are courageous, uh, 
who are courageous in the area of societal upheaval uh, become cowardly and trying to stand with you in the issues that really are solutions for man's soul and spirit. I mean, honestly, it's time out for Christians to, you need to make up your mind like now while we're doing this podcast, you need to make up your mind now of whose side you're going to be on. Because it's getting to that point where eventually it's going to become really obvious whose side you're on, whether you open your mouth or not. It's just going to become obvious by your actions. Right. So as the Bible says, choose today who, who, who you're going to serve. Absolutely. You know? so, so like Brother Eric said last time, I, I, I take exception to people who are practicing ethnic prejudice. I take exception to them mm-hmm. across mm-hmm. the board. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't matter what ethnicity it is. However, what I will not do is vicariously live through every single individual who has, um, who has been put in a situation or placed themselves in a situation um, that has maybe caused some certain upheaval in their community. I'm not called to do that. Right. I'm called to look at things objectively. So there's not this, if you want to vicariously identify with something, identify with the body of Christ. Um, you know, and I, I, I think the lamentation I have, brothers, is you have a society who's lamenting the world around them, the politics, the president in office, and they're wearing crosses on their necks and they're saying they're Christians and they're posting and quoting Bible verses. Uh, but when it comes to standing on biblical grounds, which may separate you from the groups you love, from the groups who have control over this present spirit of the age, when it comes to doing that, people are quiet. I mean, they're very, very yeah. quiet about that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I don't think like like the black nationalists and the and, and, and the uh, and the assimilator doesn't get to choose what's convenient for them. Neither does the Christian. And 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 the sad thing is that these opposing ideologies are far more bold than the Christians who have the truth. That's that's what saddens me. In some <laughs> cases, that is absolutely true. Uh, you, you look like you wanted to say something, Eric. You, Oh yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, to end out this episode of the podcast, uh, we had there's at the end of this book they offer four responses to critical critical race theory. Mm-hmm. I just want your ideas of where you think which one of these four it would be. I know. Well, let me just read them. <laughs> Number one is that critical race theory becomes the new civil rights orthodoxy. That's hmm. the first point. Uh, number two is that critical race theory becomes... Well, can, can I stop you for a second, Chris? Yeah, 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 yeah. Say the first one again. Critical race theory becomes the new civil rights orthodoxy. Unfortunately, again, this is where you see the inconsistencies and contradictions in the philosophy and the theory because, remember, their their claim is that it's impossible for the civil rights movement to erase racism because racism is the foundation of our capitalistic society. This is a contradiction. There you go. <laughs> but that's one of their ideas. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I, went, I, went for, <laughs> I just wanted to uh, insert myself there. Oh, please <laughs> insert yourself all you want to. Insert yourself all you want. So that's the yeah, first but, one. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean, um, hopefully the, those listening can pick up on that i mean that's that's a contradiction of what they're actually claiming so how can they be um the new civil rights movement when they say um the 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 that because the foundation of a capitalistic society is permanently racist 
then, um, and they say that is impossible for civil rights movement to erase racism as such. So, yeah, because it, it, earlier in the book, you know, I failed to mention the name of the book. I am so sorry. It's Critical Race Theory and Introduction is the name of the book. It's written by Richard Delgado, who's one of the original people right. started Critical Race Theory and uh, Gene Stefancic. So that that's that's the name of it. But um, at the outset, you know, they're they're saying that it it can't be it can't be erased. So, like you said, why why <laughs> now all of a sudden you're offering um, options at the end, <laughs> and one of them, you know, you clearly caught critical race theory becomes a new civil rights orthodoxy. Yeah, unless you unless you completely um, deconstruct and destroy our society and and then reconstruct it. But so, I mean, that's the route that they're going. Which which brother Duran has pointed out, you know, that's that's <clears throat> Marxism leading into fascism. Mm-hmm. And so what you have what you have all over again is a is a Nazi um, Germany. Basically. All right. So the second one is that critique uh, critical race theory becomes marginalized and ignored. And I personally don't think that's the route it's going to take because they're just they're too bold and prevalent right now. Yeah, it's attractive. Uh, it's it's attractive to people who who make a living from it, and to people who uh, who are you know afraid to uh, to it. So yeah, I don't see it disappearing. And then the third one is that critical race theory is analyzed but rejected. Well, as you can see from this podcast, we're doing number three. (laughs) We completely and totally reject that. We stand on the word. I'll I'll go with option three. (laughs) Door number three. And then the last one is that it will be partially incorporated. Partially incorporated. So now I do, even though we are number three, of course, but I do, I would go with the fourth one. I think parts of it somehow, some way are going to find their way into government, into society. And some of them already have, some of their ways already have like intersectionality, which we didn't discuss. Yes. That, exactly. That's, that's already become a, a staple of society. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if the end goal is the, you know, the worship of the antichrist, and all this is going to lead to that kind of one, one world false utopia, um, you know. So I, I think you get there by critical race theory, but I don't think critical race theory can last forever, um, as nothing outside of biblical truth does. Um, you know, it'll be replaced by what it's meant to be replaced by. Oh yeah, Maranatha. But 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 I'll definitely you know I'll definitely take option three. I believe it needs to be rejected altogether. I believe that books should be written on it so I can you know so we can uh address them and try mm-hmm. to lead people to right thinking on them by by God's power and by his spirit and for his glory but yeah i, I don't I don't see it going away anytime soon, and I believe the great trafficker of it would be um the media itself, and so the media is so powerful. And I'm talking about mainstream media. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't see them because they're getting a lot of viewership and sponsorship and, you know, social media hits. It's very lucrative to keep this before the, the people. So I don't see it going away anytime soon. All right. In fact, it may get worse. 
Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's definitely going to get worse. I mean, you just just turn on the the TV, look at the news, pick a pick a reputable news site like Reuters or BBC or the Epoch Times and read the articles. It's it's not it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. If I, if I can if I can just say something very quick. One one mm-hmm. thing you know, brother Eric said to me, we were talking and he left an, an impression on me. You know, we were talking about courage, and he said, I can't walk with cowards, you know. And I, I believe that that mindset, biblically speaking, is how you stand against this aggressively and fight it. Um, you have to be courageous in the Lord. You have to be willing as a cost of your discipleship, meaning you're following Christ. I'm not talking about the life-on-life module. I'm talking about following Christ himself and his teachings and doing what he commands um, it's going to cost you relationships with the people you love, your family. Um, you know, people are going to cast you from their circles and from society at large. Uh, but Jesus already told those who believe in him and believe on him and are in him that that would be the case. So I think the way to really aggressively, I want to end it with the hope of God's word that of course. the way to do this is to return to the, the scripture and to return to the bold proclamation, pray for boldness and the proclamation of truth in the face of this great error and this great deception. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the only way to fight successfully against it. Mm. Well, thank you, brothers. Again, another uh, off-the-cuff podcast is complete. <laughs> no, thanks for ha- having me. And uh, uh, I, I, post, I, I post in the comment section um, the book that I that I referenced, mm-hmm. uh, post postmodern times. Right. Um, by, that's in there. So those listening can click on that and, and find that book. Also, uh, I post the article here in the comment section, um, the truth versus postmodernism. And then Theron's article about black liberation theology, a critique, and then his other article, the dream and introduction where he examines the, um, the teachings of, um, Dr. Martin Luther King jr. And so those are all there for the, those that listening and then uh also just a wikipedia uh link to critical race theory has defined some of the 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 features that we went over that that the those listening can can research and i encourage them to research and find how these things all these features are interconnected and i think that it would be very profitable yeah i see some people coming in on the on the back end and my mom says she didn't get it from the beginning but once we close this out um you'll be able to watch the live stream again on facebook so you you didn't see it live but you'll be able to watch it from beginning to end also uh it'll be on the podcast as well so if you have apple podcast if you have stitcher if you have itunes uh sorry not itunes iheart radio if you have uh tune in radio or pandora <clears throat> you, you can go to any of those um streaming sites and search bcri train of thought and all of our episodes are there as well also on soundcloud which is our main site um so we uh next week you know i i pushed the doctrine back because you guys got my <laughs> you guys got my my brain going again <laughs> so next week we're going to actually pull the black lives matter manifesto off their website and we're going to examine it biblically paragraph by paragraph that's what we're going to do next week the following week uh 
brother Duran is going to talk about Malcolm X. More, more, he's going to go into more detail about Malcolm X and black nationalism. And then the following week, we'll start getting into the doctrine of black liberation theology, which is <clears throat> very key to understanding how they view God, how they view man, how they view sin, how they view uh, uh, sanctification, all those kinds of things. Uh, we, we'll get into examining those things and uh, dissecting them uh, by the word of God. Um, so again, I thank you all for listening. Thank you all for supporting us. Uh, continue to keep us in your prayers. Continue to pray the Lord's strength as we continue to be bold and come against the ideologies that uh, would stand up against God and, and his word and his people. Uh, continue to pray for the, the churches that are represented here, Eric and Mike with the Lord's Church. That's the name of their church is the Lord's Church. Uh, pray for Brother Duran's church, Biblical Christ Church. And just pray that they would continue to stand on the word of God, continue to be faithful to the right, right dividing of the word of God and instructing people, God's people in God's word. So again, thank you all for listening. We'll, we'll when, once we get off of here, we'll probably discuss whether we'll do, a, do it live again or not. We just wanted to try it out, try to see how it worked, um, see how to see what the response would be like, see if we could use the live to get the word out more. So we'll, we'll discuss it and we'll see if we'll get back on next week. Um, if not, of course, the audio will always be available to you because we plan on reaching a hundred episodes or more. So <laughs> we plan on driving this train until it, it derails. <laughs> and hopefully that'll be a long time. So again, thank you guys for listening. Uh, you guys have a blessed week and we'll see you next week. This has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. For our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.